Hey there, insiders. Exciting news to share. This fall, Stay Tuned is going back on the road, and we're headed to three new cities, Denver, Atlanta, and Detroit. As part of the insider community, you have the first chance to buy tickets available right now at cafe.com slash tour. I'm lucky to have some wonderful guests joining me for the fall 2019 Stay Tuned tour. Shannon Watts, founder of Moms Demand Action, Dana Nessel, the Attorney General of Michigan, and former Acting Attorney General Sally Yates. We'll be in Denver on October 24th, Detroit on November 12th, and Atlanta on December 4th. Head to cafe.com slash tour now for tickets. Hope to see you there. From Cafe, welcome to Cafe Insider. I'm Preet Bharara. And I'm Ann Milgram. How you doing, Ann? You're still in Los Angeles. Still in Los Angeles, coming back this week. Well, thanks for making the time for the show. Of course. What are you doing later? Uh, we're going to go to the Museum today of Natural History, check out some dinosaurs, and uh, maybe tomorrow go to the aquarium again. Oh, how is the aquarium again? Yeah. Did you see this? Did you, did <laughs> we you went see? last week after the podcast. <laughs> Look, you, and, you can't uh, go to the aquarium enough, I think. I think I have a five-year-old who uh, would say the aquarium is number one on his list of things to do in Los Angeles. <laughs> what was what was the favorite thing at the aquarium? I like the leafy sea dragons, but I think he liked the jellyfish that are fluorescent green. Were there, were there stingrays? Oh, yeah. And manta rays. Manta rays, right. Lots of rays. All right. It's a great aquarium. So between uh, now and the aquarium, we just have to talk about some unseemly stuff. Yes. That happened in recent times. So... Everyone has been talking, as you might expect, about the death of Jeffrey Epstein by apparent suicide. Some people don't think that's the case. There are a lot of conspiracy theories floating around. It's sort of a stunning turn of events. Uh, I woke up Saturday morning to the news. And um, before we get to the conspiracy theories and how this could have happened and all of that, let's just talk about sort of some of the basic facts. So to remind everyone, Jeffrey Epstein, supposed billionaire, uh, money manager, although still people don't understand where all his money came from was arrested on federal trafficking charges by the Southern District of New York, U.S. Attorney's Office, and sought bail. Remember, we had a long conversation, folks, Ann and I did, about his desire to have uh, sort of armed guards that he paid for at his $77 million mansion. That was denied. And so there he sits at the Metropolitan Correctional Center, the MCC, which I know very well. Literally, it's in downtown Manhattan, connected to the office, to 1 St. Andrews Plaza, where the U.S. Attorney's Office, where the main U.S. Attorney's Office is in the Southern District by a, a bridge connecting the third floor of our office to the jail. And people who are awaiting trial in the Southern District are generally housed there if they don't make bail. So there he sits, having been denied bail. And then I think on July 23rd or so, there is a report that he was found injured with marks on his neck. And the question was, was that a result, and we talked about this too, was that a result of an attempted suicide or was that a result of foul play he had as a cellmate someone who's been accused of a violent quadruple murder, who's a big, strong former cop. I don't know that that question was ever resolved. But then over the course of the weekend, we learned that following that event on July 23rd, he was placed in what's called suicide watch. And that happened for about six days. And then under circumstances that are not fully clear, he was permitted to go back to the special housing unit, the SHU, which is a segregated area in the Metropolitan Correctional Center for people who are either a more serious risk to others or for their own protection, either from others or from themselves. And then, of course, this past Saturday, he was found dead in his cell. Um, A couple of quick points as well, which is that what would have happened is Epstein would have stayed in the MCC until the point of trial, as you said. And then if he were convicted at trial, and it certainly looked like there was extensive evidence that the government had against him, then he would have been sentenced, at which point he would have been sentenced to a term. And under the statutes that he was facing, it was very likely to be an incredibly lengthy prison term, if not essentially the rest of his life. And so that was the sort of trajectory. Um, The other thing, and We can come sort of maybe to discuss the specifics of this a little bit later, but there is that moment also where he has, he has a cellmate, as you said, he has the former police officer, the former cop accused of murdering four people, and then he does it in the SHU. So he's on his own, he's taken off suicide watch, and he's on his own in the SHU, and he doesn't have a cellmate. And so there are a number of facts that I think are worth um, thinking through and talking about. It it was also reported over the weekend that... um, 
in the shoe that he should have been checked sort of every 30 minutes or so, that there was a process by which he would have been basically continually monitored, not on suicide watch. Suicide watch really is, and and maybe we should talk more about this, but it's it's the equivalent of a 24-7 thing. They strip all the bed sheets. They they really, they have somebody in a room that's surrounded by windows. Um, there's a office that's right off of it that somebody will be in, either a guard or another inmate who's on suicide prevention watch. And so the, the setup is a really critical part of the conversation, I think. Yeah. So let's take a step back and talk about the MCC and the shoe. The shoe is is a tough environment. The MCC itself is a tough environment. Lots and lots of famous defendants have been housed there pending trial, including Bernie Madoff, most recently El Chapo, Ahmed Gailani, who we convicted of terrorism charges. I once, you know, visited a cell uh, in the shoe that was designated for Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, the mastermind of the 9-11 terror attacks, uh, which I looked at along with Eric Holder and some others when we thought back in 2009 that the mastermind of 9-11 was going to be tried uh, here in New York. So it's it's a maximum security facility. It's very, very secure. And it ain't no picnic. Uh, I'm not aware of any escape that has taken place out of the MCC. I'm also, by the way, and it may have happened, but I don't remember any on my watch. It is also a place where you don't hear about an inmate committing suicide. Now, there's a suicide issue you know, throughout the country in a lot of different jails and prisons. And God knows there are terrible circumstances sometimes including at MCC, but in in jails and prisons around the country, one of which is a focus of a chapter of my book, Rikers Island. But whatever else you say about MCC, it it is not known as a place where this kind of thing happens. And as you point out, there is a serious protocol for suicide watch. In fact, you can can look at it online. I, I quoted from a bit of it on Twitter over the past weekend. It goes on for pages and pages. Among other things, you have no bed sheets. There are certain kinds of clothes that you can or cannot wear. There are no fixtures in the room. You're being constantly monitored. The likelihood of being able to take your own life successfully while under suicide watch, if it's done correctly, is almost zero. And it's important to note that it it looks like Epstein was only on suicide watch for about six days, that at the time of his suicide, he wasn't on suicide watch. And and just to your point about their pages and pages of documents within the Bureau of Prisons about this, it's worth noting that there is a very deeply established federal procedure that that places like MCC are required to follow when it comes to inmates who are, are on suicide watch when they get taken off suicide watch. And so I think one of the questions that needs to be investigated is why Epstein was taken off suicide watch after six days um, and what sort of tells were there. It was reported that he was potentially, you know, he was put on suicide watch after that first incident you mentioned when it wasn't clear if he was assaulted or if he had attempted suicide. It was reported over the weekend that it was an attempted suicide that first first effort. That that immediately led to him being put on suicide watch for six days. But I think there are a lot of questions about, was the process followed? Because again, there is a very strong process. What decisions were made and why? And just to also go a little bit higher level on this for one minute, because I think a lot of people don't understand something important, which is that the Federal Bureau of Prisons, where MC, the people who run MCC, they work for the Attorney General. And so they're in, they work for Bill Barr, they're in the AG's office. And it's one of those strange things. In some ways, the chief federal prosecutor is also in charge of every um, federal prison in America, but it, it happens to be the case. And so I think that that's just worth noting when the investigation gets done, it looks like it's being done both by the FBI and by the Inspector General. But I do think, you know, and I, I want to get your gut on this, Preet, because you have so much experience with the MCC. It does look like there are a lot of fair questions that need to be, a, a lot of really important questions that need to be asked about what happened and why. Because the bottom line is this shouldn't happen. No. And so there are now two investigations that will proceed, I guess, in parallel, announced by the Attorney General. One is by the FBI. You'll look into the circumstances of Jeffrey Epstein's death. And second, by the Inspector General, you know, which office is known to do pretty thorough analyses of human failure and bureaucratic failure and also corruption, if, if that was in some way implicated here. So what are, some, what are some of the questions? We've already alluded to a few of them. Question number one is, what happened on July 23rd? Um, you know, the reporting I don't always trust. Was it in fact an assault? Was it in fact an attempt uh, at taking his own life? And what was the proof of that? Uh, how thorough was the investigation of the, of the incident on July 23rd that appears to have caused them to put Jeffrey Epstein under suicide watch? Then when he was in suicide watch, what was going on there, uh, how effectively was it being done, and then who made the decision and under whose approval, because there are protocols for this also, 
for him to be removed on July 29th and put back in the shoe. Then, as I understand it, under, again, pretty detailed protocols, and you've already alluded to this as well, when you leave Suicide Watch, there's an interim sort of phase where, among other things, you're looked in on every 30 minutes and you get a cellmate, which is another sort of way to mitigate the likelihood that suicide can happen. And both of those things didn't happen on the night of his death. And the question is, uh, as some people have reported, is that because they were lacking in staff? Is that because people have been working overtime? And there's reports about that as well. Was that going on uh, for several days? In other words, was he never being looked in on every 30 minutes and every night he was at risk of taking his own life? Or did this happen just on that one instance uh, when he did happen to take his own life uh, as, as reported? Lots and lots of questions like that, which I think you'll be able to get answers to if they do a detailed investigation. They need to talk to everybody who was on duty. They need to talk to everyone who filed any paperwork. And they also need to, to see if there's any surveillance videotape of any and all things relating to that evening. You tweeted a little bit about the surveillance tape, Preet. And just a, just a question. It, it sounds like from what's been reported that that the surveillance cameras are not in the specific cells, that they're only in the sort of hallway areas. But, uh, you know, arguably you could learn a lot from the hallway areas because you could see our guards going you know, prison officials going every 30 minutes to check on him. And so it, it seems like there still could be a lot that you learned. I don't, I don't know. Well, yeah. So, so, so I, I tweeted based on common sense and actually talking to some people who are in a position to know. And it may be the case that in particular hallways that there are no cell-facing cameras. But the folks I talked to, including some people who used to work in my office, said, look, when you have a circumstance like this with the most high-profile, one of the most high-profile people in federal custody in the country, and you've had an occasion of worrying about suicide, you take special precautions. In, in this case, it looks like they did less than what is mandated by the rules and protocols. Right. And most people think they should have done that plus more. I mean, El Chapo was in that place, and I've not found confirmation of this publicly, but it's my understanding, and obviously El Chapo didn't only have a danger of um, harm to self potentially, but also he escaped famously from a, you know, a top security prison in Mexico, that there were eyes on him 24-7. And you might expect such a thing with respect to Jeffrey Epstein. Maybe that's not true. But as you say, um, if you've got camera surveillance that shows the, at least the, the entryway to his cell and there's no malfunctioning of that camera and it's complete, you'll be able to see over a period of time who, if anyone, went in and out of that cell. And you know, presumably, uh, if no one has gone in the cell during the time when he appears to have uh, hanged himself, which is what the report is, then you, then I think you have a better conclusion of whether he did it himself, or he was aided, or he was in fact the victim of foul play. Right. So the egress and ingress into that cell, as documented by a video camera, will be very telling. We should maybe also talk about why Epstein was in the shoe to begin with, which is, um, I think, just worth going through. It's not uncommon for people who are accused of crimes against women and children to be at very high risk in general population in um, in a facility that there's often violence from other inmates. And so, you know, the initial decision to put him in the shoe, was that based on the offenses that he's charged with? Was it based on his counsel's request, his request? Do you have any sense of yeah, that? So, so, so it's unclear. It could be a combination of all those things, just to let people know. Look, as, as I said, jail is not pleasant, and the shoe within a federal correctional facility is much less pleasant. I'll read to you from the BOP definition of, of what a special housing unit or shoe is. They are housing units and bureau institutions where inmates are securely separated from the general inmate population and may be housed either alone or with other inmates. So it doesn't necessarily mean you're in solitary. And the reasons they give are your presence in the general population poses a threat to life, property, self, staff, other inmates, the public, or to security or orderly running of the institution. Or, as you point out, it's also possible that you can request it. So in cases of protection, um, it may be that you requested or staff determined you need administrative detention status for your own protection. There, as you point out, there are some people who are more vulnerable in prison population than others. This is true of, of police officers sometimes who are convicted of crimes or pending trial. And, and in custody. So that there are a variety of reasons, all of which need to be studied and explored. And by the way, this one issue, I think it's very important on all this stuff, and you and I will go through it and parse it and then continue to talk about it in the coming weeks as more facts come to light, to not jump to conclusions, because there are a lot of conspiracy theories running around, and to use common sense and be very factual. And I understand that it seems ridiculous, and that's my view also, that this person was on suicide watch for six days and then removed. It does not seem right. But I'm willing to entertain that 
if real professionals were looking at this, that there were competing consideration. You know, by the way, it is not pleasant to be in jail. It is even less pleasant to be in the shoe. It is even less pleasant than that to be in the circumstances of a suicide watch. And so if they determined, and again, I have no idea if this is true, and I think the overwhelming sense I have that this is not true, but I just want to leave open the possibility that that incident on July 23rd was not in fact a suicide attempt, was in fact an assault. In an abundance of caution, they put him under suicide watch. By all outward appearances, he seemed, this is all hypothetical, he seemed to be doing okay and did not want to be there anymore because it's even more unpleasant than being in the shoe. And they said there's no reason to keep him here. Now, I don't think that's right, but I think it's important to wait to see what the investigative findings are before pointing fingers in all different directions. And the final thing I'll say is, this has been pointed out to me on Twitter. <laughs> uh, you and I keep talking about the rules and the protocols. It would not be the first time in history that rules and protocols in a prison were not followed. It also is true that you're not allowed to have a cell phone. It's also true you're not allowed to have narcotics in jails and prisons. And those kinds of things happen all the time. So there's a real possibility, although I've not seen it before, in this context of rules being violated. Yeah, that's a great point. And I think at a minimum, it's clear from public reporting that there were some rules that were violated, at least processes and procedures within BOP. And so I think there are real questions of why that happened. And the real question is going to be, was it negligence? Was it misconduct on behalf of the officers? Was it calculated by Epstein to get the officers not to do that? You know, and we're speculating, but there's a ton of reasons. Yeah. Or, or foul play. Or foul play. Exactly. Exactly. Let's, let's go through them. So, so negligence, payoff by Epstein in some way to accomplish this on his own? Or a guard on a Friday night who doesn't want to go every half an hour doing something else. Like, it could have been a payoff, corruption. It could also have just been, you know, simple a simple failure to, to follow the rules. Look, <clears throat> so I think we've established already that clearly there was some level of incompetence and negligence and, uh, you know, lack of following of the rules. That seems pretty clear. We'll wait and see what the findings of the, of the FBI and the inspector general are, but the fact that it happened and it almost never happens, the fact that some protocols weren't followed, I think there's a lot of questions. And so at a base, at a bare minimum, you, you have that. Second, on this issue of whether or not someone of such means could pay someone off, it happens. It happens at the MCC. In fact, the defendant to whom we compared Jeffrey Epstein a couple of episodes ago, Reza Zarab, the gold trader from Iran, who also tried to pay for his own personal guards in an expensive uh, hotel or home in New York City, he was denied bail and was housed at the MCC. And uh, a corrections officer, I believe, was bribed with $50,000 to bring contraband to Reza Zarb. You know, that's a circumstance where someone who had a lot of money was able to give some of that money to somebody who was supposed to be protecting him and following the rules to get contraband. Is it crazy that Jeffrey Epstein decided, I don't want to, you know, go through this and I want to end things forever for him to have been able to do that with somebody at the MCC? I hope not. But it's certainly something, I'm not saying this lightly, it is certainly something that's in the realm of possibility, don't you think? Yes, I definitely do. And I think it's one of the main questions that came to my mind on Saturday was, you know, did Epstein pay somebody off? Um, did did he convince the guards in some way to leave him on his own? Um, did he convince people that he wasn't a suicide threat? I mean, these are all questions that hopefully yep. will be answered. But yes, I mean, I, I think to your point that there's contraband in prisons and jails across America, there's a stunning amount of both contraband being smuggled in, things that shouldn't be there. And, you know, frankly, there's there's a lot of things that happen in prisons and jails that shouldn't happen that are publicly right. reported. And so I think we have to look at this with, you know, a, a sort of basic understanding that that there's something that went wrong here. And the real question is, you know, can they find out why? And obviously, they're probably already interviewing, um, subject to the union, the correctional officers union rules, yeah. but they, they should be interviewing. There were two officers that were on duty um, Friday night into Saturday morning. They should be finding out where they were, why they did what they did. They should be interviewing and pulling all, obviously, the paperwork on suicide watch. The one other piece, which I, I did not know until I was reading up on the MCC protocols, is that there's only one psychiatrist for the entire population. You know, in a population that is often characterized as having higher instances, both the prison and jail populations in America, having higher instances of mental health than the general population, it seems like there's an incredible lack of um, sort of experts 
both psychologists and psychiatrists in this space who are servicing the MCC. And so I think there's also just a real question of, you know, is the process even such that it cannot be gamed by somebody who wants yeah. to game it? No, that's that's a completely true and a fair point. And I think that'll be looked at also. One thing I want to make sure that people understand about what you and I are saying, because we're using these sort of blithe analogs to other things that happened and rules that get violated and contraband in prisons. This is not like any of those things. Bad things happen in prison, and we know about that from television and from reading news reports. But the suicide of an incredibly high profile, I mean, as high profile as you get, an incredibly high profile federal inmate at a place like the MCC, where all sorts of things failed to prevent it, is an incredibly unusual, if not unprecedented thing. Yeah, it's, so, it's a great point. I was shocked when I saw it. Is, it. it is a shocking thing. Um, and I think as, as seen by the reaction all the way from the attorney general on down, and I, and I credit the attorney general being, he said he was appalled, uh, and, and he should be, and I was, and I know you were yes. for a lot of reasons, including that at long last, when people thought they were going to get some closure and some understanding of the crimes of Jeffrey Epstein, uh, and some justice that has been denied through un uncertain circumstances. That's right. That's right. And and it is a failure on the part of the BOP, um, without question. And so, right. And we're speculating as to the reasons why, but this is, it is an extraordinary thing. And, you know, the, the other point that's worth just making is that this is probably, you know, it's, I would have to think a little bit more about this, but this is without question, one of the most high profile federal cases at the moment. And so the idea that, taking Epstein off suicide watch wouldn't have gone up the chain of command to a pretty high level or that these decisions weren't being made at a pretty high level. Uh, you know, I think the warden of MCC probably was involved in a lot of this. And so I think these are questions we have to ask because yeah. the way you act in a situation like this, when you know that you have a very high profile inmate who is facing a lifetime in prison um, and has lost his bid to be out. There are a lot of sensitivities that I think would be brought to bear. And and by the way, that's true of all inmates um, that are charged with these types of offenses who face these problems. But Epstein was unique in a number of ways that I think would have would have meant that the people at the top were watching him very closely. We should just for a minute talk about this issue of suicide and criminal investigations. As I said. I'm not aware of anyone who, who died by suicide in custody while I was a U.S. attorney. And I, I haven't found other people who can remember that as well. And I don't know if you've had this awful experience, but there have been a number of occasions where somebody who was not in custody, who was under investigation, uh, took his or her life. And it was, and I'm not a mental health professional, but in planning for arrests in certain kinds of cases, especially white collar cases, people who uh, had been very successful and were going to be arrested on charges that were very serious, sometimes relating to child pornography or corruption or something else. That was something we talked about with respect to the arrest. Right. It's something that you're always sensitive to. And there were, there were protocols that you would undertake. And sometimes, you know, we would consider what we would say to the attorney in advance to make sure that there was no, that, that the person being arrested would not do harm to himself. And that happened on, on a number of occasions. Uh, and so the idea that when you have someone in custody like this after there had been an incident, that you wouldn't be incredibly sensitive to that, it just still boggles my mind. Yeah, it's a great point. And it's also worth just noting that the suicide rate in jails is three and a half times that of the suicide rate in the general population. And that's a lot. And so it, it does point out that when you deal in uh, people being incarcerated, separated from their families, that suicide is a real concern that prisons and jails face just overall. And yes, with any defendant who is being held, it's a significant change in their in their lives and it, it is a risk. And so 100%, it's something that, that gets considered a lot by prosecutors, by prison and jail officials. And and so it's this is this is extraordinary in many ways because Epstein, um, I think all of us would have thought that he was on special watch, that there was a situation where they would have been very cautious with him. And frankly, no one should die in a prison or jail. Um, but at the at the same time, there is there's a history nationally of of this happening at rates that are not acceptable. And so it also does raise the question of how we handle all these issues in jails and prisons, in my mind. So let's indulge for a moment some of these conspiracy theories, either to just sort of assess them or debunk them. If it was, in fact, foul play, Ann Milgram, was the uh, 
Was the death ordered by Bill Clinton or by Donald Trump? <laughs> I saw Donald Trump's tweet. <laughs> I saw Donald. I was like, wait, and I, let me see if I can find it to read it. Um, well, so somebody, some people are going out of their minds with respect to these conspiracy theories. And there's lots of people who are saying, well, there were there were rich and powerful men who had something to lose. And by the way, the one thing we haven't mentioned uh, is a fact that feeds the conspiracy theories, but it also feeds a sort of you know more sanguine theory also, and that is. Uh, Jeffrey Epstein died or was found dead the morning after all these documents were made public that named particular men, uh, many of them famous and formerly powerful, uh, who maybe would have had more revelations come out against them if Jeffrey Epstein were to live and testify and cooperate. So, you know, that on the one hand may, may explain why he decided to end his life at that time. And to the conspiracy theorists, it explains why people decided, well, we've had enough of this guy and we can't let him live on. It's it's a really important point. We know for certain that last Friday, a federal appellate court in New York unsealed around 2,000 pages of documents from a civil defamation case that has been settled. And that case was between a woman named Virginia Roberts uh, Gouffre, who was an alleged victim of Jeffrey Epstein, and the British socialite... Um, Ghislaine Maxwell, who has been reported, she's a longtime Epstein associate. She was reported as um, one of the individuals who would go out and find young girls for Jeffrey Epstein as part of sort of Epstein's criminal enterprise. And so the allegations from Virginia Roberts Gouffre alleged that Epstein and Maxwell together directed her to have sex with Prince Andrew, Alan Dershowitz, former New Mexico Governor Bill Richardson, former Senator George Mitchell, um, a well-known prime minister who wasn't named, a foreign man who was introduced to her as a prince. And remember, these are just allegations. They were The case never went to trial. The allegations were never tested in court. And so they may be true and they may be false, but it is a level of sort of finger pointing as to specific individuals who may have been part of Epstein's um, ring that it definitely raises questions and was a big part of the media story on Friday that these allegations were coming out. And again, they're untested, but there's no question that... um, you know, they're being made against um, against not just Epstein, but the a woman who has not been charged again, um, who has actually not been charged in connection, uh, either right. in the federal case or in the Florida case, in connection with Epstein. And so I think there are definitely questions that, that are surrounding that. And you're right that it could be, it could go to either point. It could go to Epstein's motive to basically say, look, I'm going to spend the rest of my life in prison and I'm also going to end up taking down a lot of people with me. Um, There'll be a lot of collateral damage. And so that could be a big motive for him to end his life. There's also the possibility that there are, you know, this argument, which, which I don't, I don't credit yet, but again, I mean, there's a lot of facts and information we don't have. And so I think you and I are both always, you know, you always sort of go with the most simple explanation until you learn more. Um, But, you know, it does add fuel to the fire of this question of, you know, there are a lot of people who would have suffered if Epstein went to trial or who could have been criminally implicated. Look, conspiracy theories are awful and they can do a lot of damage and they can be ludicrous. This is a circumstance in which there is so much craziness here. You know, as is often said, if this had been a Hollywood script, it would have been rejected because it was not believable enough. Yeah. And you have the timing and you have the powerful men and you have the politics involved. And you also have, I think, a point in time in our country where conspiracy theories are easy to feed and lots of people have access to social media where people are putting out things and, and people are not focusing on facts, that it's a perfect storm for conspiracy theorists. The one thing I will say with respect to people who, who are you know, suggesting, as someone did that the president retweeted, this has something to do with the Clintons. Um, the MCC, as you pointed out right at the beginning of this show, is uh, within the Bureau of Prisons, which is in the Department of Justice, which is led by the handpicked attorney general of the president of the United States. And that institution is under direct control of the Trump administration. So, you know, you have to take that into account One question. as you think about crazy conspiracy theories. One question, Preet, which I've sort of had in my head a little bit, is that obviously Trump has also been implicated. He was a close friend of Epstein's for many years. Then they had a falling out. But obviously we've all seen in the media a lot of pictures with um, Trump and Epstein with wives and girlfriends, um, you know, that have surfaced since Epstein has been charged. It, 
and again, you know, I, I do sort of feel like in my mind, it's a fair question to ask whether Bill Barr, I mean, the FBI reports to Bill Barr, the inspector general is independent um, by statute, but works within the Department of Justice with Bill Barr. And I do think inspectors general have been largely independent, but I still think if Trump is and has been implicated as potentially being a part of, you know, Jeffrey Epstein's circle, I do think there's a fair question of whether the Department of Justice should be in charge of this investigation. And I'm not sure there's a great answer, but I I sort of, I think in today's world, there's such a dose of skepticism around everything that it doesn't mean I don't think that the FBI could conduct a fair investigation. I actually do. But it did raise a question in my mind of thinking, you know, Trump appoints Bill Barr. Bill Barr is clearly, um, you know, a Trump he plays for Trump's team, um, and we've seen that in an, in a number of different ways. And he oversees BOP, and so and Epstein is associated with Trump, and so there is a level of connection here that I think gives rise to a fair, gives rise to questions at least about how this should be handled. So I'll come across as either measured or naive with my answer, and as Bill Barr sits in Washington D.C., atop an institution of a hundred or one hundred and ten thousand men and women. The investigation is going to happen locally with local people. You know, I know the head of the, of the IG's office uh, in New York. He used to work for me also. And the FBI agents and the local prosecutors who will do the mundane work of looking at the footage, of looking at the documents, interviewing the witnesses, looking at the protocols. That, that is something that I find very hard to micromanage uh, at the U.S. attorney level, much less at the attorney general of the United States level. Now, at the end of the day... With the Mueller report, as we've seen, if there's a lengthy report that comes out, Bill Barr was able, I think, to distort it and put out a summary. And there are ways in which Bill Barr can can change the uh, you know the, the news a little bit when it comes out. But if there is a definitive, meticulous investigation done by both the inspector general and local FBI agents uh, that can be seen to be full, thorough, complete, conclusive, it's it's really hard to put a gloss on that. It's really hard to twist it if you're the attorney general. I think still in modern America where lots of doubts linger and swirl on what happened in that case. So the problem will be if it's not conclusive or unable to be conclusive because there's no conclusive videotape, uh, there's no definitive uh, explanation given for what happened and you see lots of, uh, you know, not, not, every, not every crime scene and every death can be fully explained. Um, you know, think of the Kennedy assassination uh, for starters and most famously. And in that circumstance, then I think lots of people will be wondering, was the fix in uh, or did something go awry or was someone trying to protect someone? Uh, you know, whether it's um, some of the people who were mentioned in the documents on Friday or some of these, you know, famous current and former presidents that we're talking about. Um, I still have faith and confidence that this doesn't seem to be so complex that they can't get to the bottom of it, but that remains to be seen. The one thing that's maybe worth saying um, and probably doesn't need to be said in some ways or shouldn't need to be said, but the investigation should be made public in some form. You know, inspector general reports are often released publicly. And this is, this is one of the areas where I think it's critically important that the public get the opportunity to see the results of this kind of investigation. Um, I totally agree with that. And I also think, by the way, I do have some criticism for the, for the BOP. Uh, They don't like to make statements. They don't like to talk about what's gone on behind prison walls. They did make a statement on Saturday afternoon, but but I think they would have done themselves a favor if they were more transparent. And I know you want to make sure you have all your ducks in a row and the I's dotted and the T's crossed and everything else. But there have been other circumstances too, uh, when things happen at the MCC and at other prisons, where speculation is rampant and conspiracy theories begin to swirl around and they would do themselves a favor, especially when they have you know facts that can calm people down to make them public and not wait, you know, 18 months. I agree very much with that. Yeah. Okay. So now people are asking what happens with the case. Now, with respect to Jeffrey Epstein, there's no such thing in this country and the federal system that I'm aware of, of continuing to prosecute someone after their death. What will happen is they will file something that's called a nolly, which is a dismissal of the indictment against Jeffrey Epstein. There's no further prosecution of Epstein. With respect to assets, and I can't remember if they were frozen, but with respect to any assets that may have been frozen and that may have been part of a plan to uh, seize in connection with the crimes, including properties of his, I don't see a way by which they can actually do that because that would have to rely on a future uh, guilty verdict in the criminal case. And since that can't happen, 
I don't know how that forfeiture can proceed. And separately, the victims in the Epstein case could bring civil cases and seek seizure and forfeiture of Epstein's assets as part of those cases. But as part of the federal criminal case, that effort to seize his assets will end. But, you know, the question then remains, are there other people who could be charged with some of the crimes that Jeffrey Epstein was accused of. It seemed like Jeff Berman was saying that. I mean... He made a very strong statement. I'm I'm proud of the office for doing this. And it's unusual to make a Saturday afternoon statement when you don't have all the the facts ready yet. But I think this is an unusual case, an important case. And he was very strong in talking about vindicating the victims when he announced the arrest of Jeffrey Epstein in the first place. And he said, among other things, our investigation of the conduct charged in the indictment, which included a conspiracy count, remains ongoing. And then he urged people to come forward if they have information. So there's some people who, who could still face criminal charges, right? Yes, absolutely. And I thought I thought it was a very strong statement. And I actually noted that he sort of went to great lengths to say, we're still investigating the conspiracy. Epstein didn't do it alone. And we're still looking at the people who did it with him. And that is really, it, it, that's a very telling thing for him to say, which is which is that the case is ongoing. It may not be against Jeffrey Epstein, but we may be able to bring cases against other folks. I do think to this point that, you know, obviously the focus was on Epstein's suicide over the weekend, but I do think that, it, and, and Berman, the current U.S. attorney in the Southern District pointed this out, there is, it's very difficult for victims of Epstein who felt feel like they have not been able to get a fair day in court because of what happened in Florida with the non-prosecution agreement and now because Epstein's suicide removes the criminal case. And so I, I think there is a lack of a sense of closure for the victims. Yes, they can still file civil lawsuits. Yes, they can still proceed um, in court. But I think a lot of victims saw saw Epstein being charged criminally and facing federal criminals, very serious federal criminal charges as a reckoning and Epstein getting his day in court and the victims getting their day in court. And that that's no longer the case. And so, you know, Berman, I think, was stepping out to say, look, we're not going to have Epstein, but we're still we're still going to pursue this as as aggressively as we can. Can I ask you a question? Um, And everyone is different. And so when I look at the current U.S. attorney, Jeffrey Berman's statement, I think the following I would obviously, as U.S. attorney at this moment, know, uh, not for certain, but know some likelihood of whether or not other charges are going to be able to be brought. And I would be very loath to make a comment, I think, about the investigation being ongoing if I had reason to believe that the likelihood of other charges was close to zero. And sometimes you know that, and sometimes that's the case, because you don't want to raise expectations. I feel exactly the same way. If, if this were you, what would it take for you to make a statement like this in terms of likelihood of future charges? What you just said, which is I would not put something in here unless I believed that it was very likely we would charge someone. And the reason is that these victims have been on a roller coaster. They've had decades of not being able to get their day in court. And I would never want to give someone false hope if I didn't believe that there were other likely charges. And so my read is is exactly the same as yours, which is that Jeffrey Berman putting this in is a, is a sign to me, at least the way I would have done it, and I think you would have done it, is that it means that it's very likely that there will be additional charges. Otherwise, you're sort of, you're raising hopes and expectations, and you have victims who've already been disappointed in the federal government, let down by the criminal justice system through corruption and other problems. And so the last thing you want to do is give someone hope if, it, if, it's, not, if it's not true. A couple of things. Jeffrey Epstein's death and people's concern about, you know, cases against other people and how that's affected presupposes that he was going to flip and cooperate. Uh, there's a great likelihood that he, he wouldn't have done that. And so that he wouldn't have had evidence to bring to bear against other people. Uh, also note that there were extensive searches done of Jeffrey Epstein's homes and other properties. And the fruits of those searches, you agree, Anne, can still be used against everyone else who will, by the way, not have standing to uh, suppress that evidence. Exactly. Yeah. The only person who would have had standing to argue that the evidence was illegally seized in violation of the Constitution um, and laws was Jeffrey Epstein. And so if, you know, if I leave something at your house, your house is um, searched and I then want to come in and say, and it's going to be used in a case involving you. And I come in and say, he can't use that. It's mine. I have no standing because it's your house. Yeah. It's your property. And so here. And, yep. and you should, you should come get that stuff. From my house <laughs> <possible>. <laughs> I know. I don't know why I, I always should, use me and you, you in get hypos. Back from LA, you should, you should take back that bag you left. <laughs>
<laughs> Moving on. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know. So one question, Pre, and I think, you know, I've dealt with this a lot in my trafficking cases, but one of the questions that I think has been raised is a number of Epstein's co-conspirators or people who are working with him as part of the criminal organization to get young girls, um, to make young girls available to him and essentially uh, sexually assault young girls. A lot of those women were very likely or, or very possibly at least also victims of Epstein. And so this is something I've seen in many trafficking cases. And, and one of the questions raised is, would those individuals be charged because they're, they're potentially both victims and criminal defendants? And, you know, I don't know your experience in this space, but my answer is sometimes. And it really depends on the facts that, you know, I have charged um, in human trafficking cases, individuals who we believed were victims um, initially, but who then became such critical parts of the sex trafficking organization and administered beatings and torture of young girls that we felt we had to break those charges, that it wouldn't be justice not to, while also being sympathetic and understanding that they were themselves victimized. There are other cases, and there are many cases where um, individuals who are victims who then become part of the organization with the trafficker have not been charged. And so I think it really depends on on the facts of the case and the specific um, women and what they've done that were that you would be talking about. Yeah, I think that's totally correct. Um, so we've been talking about lawsuits. Two lawsuits were filed this past week, both by former FBI agents. One, Peter Strzok of um, Special Counsel Investigation fame and Andrew McCabe who had been the deputy director of the FBI under Jim Comey. And both of them were fired. Um, can I use the verb ignominiously? Yes. I haven't used, that, I haven't used that in a while. <laughs> fired ignominiously. Uh, and, you know, were arguably deprived of uh, some retirement benefits. Uh, I think Andy McCabe literally the, the day before some vesting of his pension was to take place. And they're arguing, among other things, that uh, it was retaliatory because there was all this pressure from the president on Jeff Sessions, the then attorney general and other people to fire them. What do you make of these cases? Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. Do you, do you think they, they coordinated filing them in the same week? I mean, I sort of, I, I doubt it. So my guess is, yeah. uh, my sense is um, that Peter Strzok, look, and I'm not a civil litigator, uh, even though these issues, you know, ref reflect on law enforcement conduct and activity and proper behavior but that Peter Strzok in some ways has the stronger case and less weakness than the, the Andy McCabe case. And we can talk about why that is in a moment. And that, that maybe people were watching to see if Peter Strzok would file a suit and how that would be received. Um, I don't know that there was direct coordination, no. Yeah. So I, I agree with your read on the lawsuits too. And it's, it's, worth, it's worth remembering that Donald Trump tweeted about extensively about both McCabe and about Peter Strzok and that the arguments are a little bit different in the lawsuits. Peter Strzok, the FBI agent who was fired, he, he was fired in August of 2018. And he argues it was, you know, quote, because of his protected political speech in violation of his First Amendment rights. And right. remember, he had the text messages with Lisa Page in which he was critical of the president. And it became... I mean, very, very, I mean, in fairness... Very critical. Very critical of the president. And he was working on the whom, investigation. Whom he, whom, he, whom he was investigating. Yes. So... Not not a good thing, which is always important to say. Yes, terrible. And then, and what's really interesting about Strzok, though, I think, and why I think one of the reasons why his case, I think, is probably a better case, has a, has a better shot, is that, so Strzok does this terrible thing, and I think you're exactly right to point that out, which is he's investigating the president. He has these wildly inappropriate text messages with a lawyer, Lisa Page, and is, is critical of the president and basically says we're not going to let it happen, um, that he's going to be elected. And so it's very clear that he has he has violated, in my view, you know, whether whether it's it's laws, probably not. But he's done something in violation of the FBI um, rules and regulations he shouldn't have done. Now, he gets removed from the Mueller investigation and it goes to the assistant director in charge of the FBI who who makes a determination that he should not be fired. And that's one of the reasons why I think his case is stronger. She makes a finding that he should not be fired as a result of that, that he should be suspended for 60 days and then allowed to resume his duties. And he is fired. Um, despite that, he's fired. And so his argument is, you know, I have free speech, which obviously is not exactly true. Like we all have free speech, but when, right, when, you're, right. when you're an FBI agent, the FBI is allowed to tell you, you can't, you know, 
send it, send messages that look like you're prejudging an investigation, which this did. And so, you know, it's it's very clearly fair game that he would be disciplined and sanctioned for this. I think the question is, was there something political then in the FBI director saying that the deputy direct, the assistant deputy directors finding that he should not be fired, the the FBI director overturning that essentially and firing him was that appropriate so i th- yeah because because procedurally yeah you know through the ordinary course he was found to have you know engaged in some conduct that wasn't good and got some discipline for it and as you point out that was then overruled and the question will become uh and you know a lot of the the, the fire will come from an assessment of whether or not the president who so publicly called for this guy to be fired and humiliated him publicly in tweets and otherwise and in speeches whether that had some effect uh and that that has some persuasive force. Yeah, and we don't know the facts here enough to to know whether this is truly a strong case, but one of the questions you would ask would be how often does the FBI director overturn the decisions of the assistant director in charge of the disciplinary process? And if the answer is never, then it certainly would strengthen Peter Strzok's case enormously. If it's all the time, the FBI director gets to make decisions and sometimes thinks, actually, I think this is really serious, even though the disciplinary process doesn't think it rises to the same level that I do, I'm going to fire that person. So those are the kind of questions I think that that we're going to want to know more about. Now, Andy McCabe, and you and I have talked about him before, um, he, his case, I think, is is significantly different in many ways, um, and it sounds like you think like you think that as well. Well, the ways in which it's similar is he gets fired in a politically charged environment where the president is saying terrible things about him, and basically, you know, through the public airwaves and on social media, saying he should be fired. The timing looks certainly vindictive and retaliatory, so all of those things are swirling around which make it look a little bit similar. The difference is that, you know, in order to prevail on, in the lawsuit, uh, for the government to prevail in the lawsuit, one of the things they would like to be able to show is that there was a, a non-nefarious reason for the firing and that it was justified. And there's an extensive Inspector General report that, you know, pained me to read, which at multiple junctures say that Andy McCabe lacked candor in talking about statements that he authorized to the press that they said helped him personally. Now, there was this controversy about whether or not there was a Clinton Foundation investigation. And Andy McCabe authorized someone at the FBI to tell a journalist that, you know, there was in fact that investigation when Jim Comey had refused to confirm the fact of the investigation. And at multiple points, when Andy McCabe was asked by investigating agents with the Inspector General's office about that, they found that he lacked candor. And, you know, that's not that's not an unauthorized basis for dismissal. So I think a lot is going to turn on whether or not he lied to investigators. Yeah. And if we go back and think about it, I mean, his, his strongest point, McCabe's strongest point is basically Trump asked me to give him political allegiance. I refused to swear that allegiance to him and he fired me because of it. If you didn't have this, um, and there's certainly a number of tweets that the president made about Andy McCabe um, attacking both he he and his wife's political affiliation. Um, And so it certainly looks like Trump was targeting McCabe. But if you if you with with the fact that he does have um, a finding that he violated a number of department policies and was not forthright, he lied, essentially, if you didn't have that piece, I think McCabe's case is a lot stronger. With those findings, um, with those findings about repeated instances in which McCabe didn't didn't tell people about what his role was in those leaks to the media, that he actually misled them, or or at least through omission was was telling a lie, was not truthful about it. If you didn't have that, you have a very different situation here than you do, given the fact that um, and. and one thing to note is in some ways McCabe and and Strzok look similar because they both have findings against them that they, um, that they did things they shouldn't have done. I think that the difference here is that McCabe's has gone. um, He was the deputy director. He was removed and then terminated. And um, the findings are extensive and repeated violations. Strzok was at a lower level. He was an agent. He wasn't in a leadership position. Um, And there's, there's no indication that he actually lied about it. He may have. We don't know that, but there's no indication at this point that he lied about those text messages. And so yeah, and there's a difference. With Andy McCabe, there was an inspector general report that made these findings. 
and maybe a different set of inspector general investigators would have made different findings, but I don't see any evidence, and it would be tough to find evidence, I think, that that IG investigation was biased or was prompted by the president or was, um, you know, steered in a particular direction because of outside political forces. A pretty thorough job. Now, you know, you can say that they didn't like Andy McCabe's explanations and they were too harsh in their judgment, but in the absence of that being found to be biased in some way uh, and not done in good faith, then you have these conclusions that are pretty significant. And, uh, you know, I think it's going to be hard to show the unreasonableness of, of the action, although there may be some middle ground where the timing of the action and the lack of ultimate due process, which they're alleging also, may allow them to have some relief. But, but the decision to engage in a disciplinary action against Andy McCabe based on what looks like good faith findings by the Inspector General's office, which you might even disagree with and think were too harsh. Um, I don't see how the lawsuit, the lawsuit will suffer from those facts, I think. I agree. It's also, no matter what else you think, you know, my reaction to both those lawsuits is that they're bold moves, right? I mean, they're they're very much playing offense um, in cases where both of them have significant vulnerabilities and, and problems. Um, you know, McCabe with candor and the Inspector General findings and struck with these, you know, deeply inappropriate and problematic text messages. And so, you know, they've come, they've come out swinging against the Department of Justice and the president, for sure. I want to make something clear also, like th- this conversation that you and I are having as lawyers on the viability and likelihood of success of these lawsuits should not obscure the fact that what the President of the United States did in his social media posts and his speeches about singling out particularly, you know, a non-leadership member of the FBI, whatever you think about those texts and whatever you think about the inappropriateness of them, the president's conduct as the commander in chief and as the person who oversees the Department of Justice was nothing less than disgusting, stupid, um, and harmful to himself and the reputation of himself and the reputation of the Bureau overall. And whether or not those allegations ultimately win the day for Peter Strzok and Andy McCabe in court, they point to something very important, that presidents should knock it off when it comes to this kind of conduct. And I think that's probably why the lawsuits were filed is my guess, is that it's a it's a pushback and a statement against the way the president behaved more than it is against um, even the disciplinary process. Though it's, it's worth noting that when it comes to law enforcement in particular, that one of the one of the reasons that people do go into law enforcement, there's so many reasons, but the, the pension benefits are very, very strong. Um, and so it is an important part of individuals' retirement that they go out with their pension benefits. And so uh, for both of these individuals, for both McCabe and Strzok, I'm sure it's a big deal that they've lost, um, that they've lost benefits. Uh, as usual, Anne, we, we've gone long and in-depth on some things. Can we talk very quickly then before we bid adieu till next week? these uh, ICE, quote-unquote, raids in Mississippi. 680 people, uh, I don't know if they were all arrested, but all swept up, maybe they were all arrested because some were later released, in a state immigration enforcement action, people calling it the largest immigration enforcement action on a single day in U.S. history, uh, mostly taking place at a number of poultry processing plants in Mississippi, uh, overseen by ICE and the United States Attorney in the Southern District of Mississippi. Yes. What do you make of that? So there are a few points. I, I was I was deeply distressed to see this. There are a few points to be made, I think. First is that, you know, we talked about the El Paso mass shooting last week, and we talked about the fact that it was specifically targeting Latinos and undocumented workers. And so there are a number of the, the individuals who were murdered in El Paso who are still being buried and their families are still grieving. And so the idea that they would do an enforcement raid immediately to, to basically, I think, stoke or at least add fuel to the president's anti-immigration fires is, is just, it's appalling to me. So that's, that's the first point to make. And I think it's worth noting that if, that it, it makes it look like the president is undertaking a concerted effort against Latinos and undocumented immigrants and undocumented workers in the United States to basically to punish them, to punish their children and their families, and to make them afraid to be here. And that, to me, is deeply, deeply problematic. The second point, which I think 
you know, you you may want to weigh in on this, but I, I do think, you know, as I read all this media coverage, there's a real lack of understanding of what is a federal crime and what is not a federal crime. And it's important for people to know that being in the country, being undocumented in the United States is not a per se federal crime. There are crimes that are associated with people being deported and re-entering the United States, which are charged and have been charged frequently under the Trump administration. But it's important to recognize that not every single person who's sitting here, there could be civil offenses brought against them for being undocumented, but that doesn't make it a federal crime. So of the sort of 600 plus people, the number that are um, eligible for, for federal criminal prosecution, it will not be that number. And so I sort of think that the way law enforcement that ICE has painted this is, you know, we're arresting all these illegal, all these criminals essentially is not, is not accurate. And the last point I just want to make, which I think is really important and there's incredible amounts of discretion that go to law enforcement. And there's a great piece by Joyce Vance um, in the Washington Post about this and her decision not to pursue these types of raids when she was the U.S. attorney. But it's really, really important just to note for a second that the charges here are only being brought against the workers. They are not being brought against the companies. There have been no charges that are filed, that have been filed against the poultry plants that are essentially employing these workers. And if, if, you know, the president is serious about wanting to stop people from employing, um, from using an undocumented workforce, then the first thing you would do would be to charge the employers, the employees, there'll be more employees there tomorrow. Um, it's, it's really not an effective or efficient way. And so if you really wanted to actually stop the employment question, you would be doing this completely differently than the president is doing it. So, so I, I agree with, with all of that. I want to say in fairness, which is another thing to say, uh, given some of the conduct, um, I, I watched immigration officials go on television yesterday and looked at some of their statements, and they, they are not saying that employers will not be charged. They're making it a point to say that they're looking both at people who are working unlawfully in the United States and the employers who knowingly hire them. When, we were, when I was a U.S. attorney, we, we wanted to go at the people who were responsible for misconduct as high up on the food chain as you could. And both then and when I was in the Senate, along with you, when we were working on immigration reform in the Senate, the focus seemed to be more on deterring employers from luring people from other places to come work in the country unlawfully, getting the benefit of their employment, getting the benefit of being able to pay them less, getting the benefit of being able to exploit them because they'd be fearful about complaining about work conditions. Yep. So some of these employers are knowingly engaging in really bad conduct. I guess the jury is out a little bit on whether or not they will ultimately charge employers. And maybe they're just saying that now. I do agree with what you have said and what Joyce Vance, my former colleague, U.S. attorney in Alabama, said in her op-ed, that, that normally you would expect the enforcement action against employers to happen first. Yes. So you don't tip your hand. Uh, and or simultaneously with doing something with respect to the people, if you do anything at all, the people who are employed there without documentation. So it's a little bit odd. It is also true, and I don't know all the circumstances, that depending on how clever the employers are to, to say, well, we relied on a third-party vendor, like some people do with respect to their cleaning services or with respect to their nannies. Um, they're people who engage in bad conduct who just are willfully blind. And in some circumstances, although I find it hard to believe that those circumstances apply here, when you have 680 people swept up, in some circumstances, it might be hard to prove criminally the intent of the employer who could say, well, I, you know, the service certified that they were documented and they were lawful. And so I proceeded. I mean, that's often bullshit. And and I think if you're a good prosecutor, a good investigator, you know that it's BS and you try to pierce that and you get under it and you deal with the employers who are engaging in the violation, willful violation of federal law and the exploitation of people who are coming in. Um, but at least according to their lip service, they're looking at the employers too. One point that's worth making is that it is a harder case to bring a case against the employer without question. It's a harder case to prove against the employer. But it's the more important part of this conversation. If you want to think about, you know, people being exploited as workers and stopping the sort of unfair competition, then the action has to be brought against the employers. And yes, they could be charged after, but it just, it feels to me completely the wrong way to do a criminal prosecution to take the workers out first. Also, you know, this was done with a lot of fanfare, a lot of talking about it's the biggest enforcement action ever, and not to bring an action against the companies. And it just, it doesn't make sense. It sends a terrible, it sends a terrible message. 
and and it makes it seem like some people can operate with impunity. And combined with these other stories, by the way, which like so many things in the Trump era, I find astonishing, is that, hey, guess what? Guess who else is engaging in this kind of conduct and exploiting undocumented labor? Oh, it's the president's own companies, right? Right. And there's case after case where there's evidence that Trump businesses have been doing the same thing. And what's his answer when he says he's, you know, on the one hand, he says he's responsible for every bit of success in everything he's ever touched. Here he says, well, I don't run those companies, or I didn't run that company. Yes, it's also worth pointing out, and and we've talked about this before, but the the way that children were treated during these raids, that ICE literally took parents. They um, there were kids who were not picked up from daycare, from from camps, from schools. There were literally photographs of kids being left on the street with neighbors because ICE had taken their family, and we have to be really. I think, honest with ourselves about ICE says, well, we ask people if they have kids and we'll make arrangements for the kids to be picked up. But, you know, the reality of if you're a parent, the last thing you want ICE to do in today's world is to pick up your children. You fear that they'll be put into an incarceration, into essentially a jail cell. And so the reality of that is just that ICE is basically taking apart families yet again. And the president went out and said that this is a good deterrent. And so we should be really clear yet again that it appears that ICE and the federal government, that they're using um, immigration to try to punish parents, like they're, and they're using children to punish parents and to, and to basically breathe fear into, into individuals who are undocumented in the U.S. And so I don't, I don't think we should let this go without making the larger point of the president is a very concerted effort here and a very clear plan. And this, in my mind, is just another part of that. All right, so kind of a rough week. Um, yeah. Not a lot of room for humor given these stories this week, but we'll pay attention to the news the coming seven days and report back to you next Monday. See you next Monday, Ann. Send us questions. Take care. Bye. This is the Cafe Insider Podcast. Your hosts are Preet Bharara and Ann Milgram. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The senior producer is Aaron Dalton. And the cafe team is Carla Pierini, Julia Doyle, Calvin Lord, Vinay Basti, and Jeff Eisenman. Our music is by Andrew Dost. Thank you for being a part of the Cafe Insider community. <laughs>